Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. So to reduce costs, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. Over 70,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash gps. netsuite.com slash gps. This is GPS, the global public square. Welcome to all of you in the United States and around the world. I'm Fareed Zakaria. We'll begin today's show on the other side of the globe. World leaders have been meeting in Papua New Guinea this weekend, but one leader has been noticeably absent from this year's APEC summit, Donald Trump. Why isn't he there? Also, what in the world is going on with Brexit? We'll tackle all of it with a terrific panel. And the 2018 midterms are over, sort of. Now it's time to learn some lessons and look ahead to 2020. The big question, should Democrats zig left or zag toward the center to beat Donald Trump? We'll have a debate. Finally, we'll put the art into artificial intelligence. Can you pick out which of these paintings was painted by a robot? Stay tuned to find out. But first, here's my take. It's easy to get distracted by the circus of the Trump presidency. We all do. But what is its larger effect? Well, for an answer, take a look at three gatherings this week on the other side of the planet. Attended by all the major Asian countries, the ASEAN and East Asia summits in Singapore and the APEC conference in Papua New Guinea are particularly important because countries in the region are trying to navigate the seismic power shift taking place there, the rise of China. For this, it is crucial they understand the role of the world's current superpower, the United States. But the president of the United States is MIA. Donald Trump chose to skip the summits and send Vice President Mike Pence in his place, yet China's President Xi Jinping, Russia's Vladimir Putin, and India's Narendra Modi all visited either Singapore or Papua New Guinea, while Japan's Shinzo Abe and South Korea's Moon Jae-in traveled to both. A persistent complaint from Asian countries has been that while the United States worries about the rise of China, as Pence did in his speech at the ASEAN summit, it is abandoning the field to Beijing. It does not take the time to attend meetings, shape the agenda, shore up its alliances, deepen its ties in the region. Trump's continued lack of interest will only feed this fear. We're seeing the Trump effect in the retreat on trade in Asia as well. The two mechanisms for greater prosperity and cooperation that were moving toward completion in the region had been the Trans-Pacific Partnership and the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership. Trump pulled America out of the TPP, undermining the pact's goal of giving Asian countries a stable alternative to a Chinese-dominated system. And after 24 rounds of negotiations for the RCEP, which includes China, momentum appears to have slowed, perhaps even stalled. India is trying to protect its market from Chinese imports. Other countries are trying to keep India's service industries out. And everyone can take solace that this is all simply an echo of what the world's superpower, the United States, 
is doing in its own trade negotiations. I've said before and continue to believe that the Trump administration has a valid point about China's abuse of the global trading system, and it is right to get tough with Beijing. But it is grossly mistaken in its instinctive opposition to trade in general, repeatedly voiced by the president. Trump said in July, If we didn't trade, we'd save a hell of a lot of money. This statement is simply false. According to calculations by the Peterson Institute for International Economics, the expansion of trade since 1950 raised U.S. GDP to the tune of $2.1 trillion in 2016. That is the equivalent of a gain of $7,014 per person or $18,131 per household. There are few ideas that have been as thoroughly tested through history as the notion that trade raises a country's income and living standards. It can also have the effect of creating habits of cooperation, even peace, as it has done in Europe and as it might help to do in Asia. American leaders understood that for decades, until now. In 1988, Ronald Reagan said in a radio address, We should beware of the demagogues who are ready to declare a trade war against our friends, weakening our economy, our national security, and the entire free world, all while cynically waving the American flag. The expansion of the international economy is not a foreign invasion. It is an American triumph, one we worked hard to achieve and something central to our vision of a peaceful and prosperous world of freedom. For more, go to CNN.com slash Fareed and read my Washington Post column this week. And let's get started. Let's keep the conversation going about Asia with today's panel. Kurt Campbell was President Obama's Assistant Secretary of State for East Asian and Pacific Affairs from 09 to 13. He now runs a strategic advisory group focused on Asia. Rana Farua is a global business columnist for the Financial Times and CNN's global economic analyst. And Ian Bremmer is the founder and president of Eurasia Group and the foreign affairs columnist for Time magazine. Uh, Kurt, let me start with you. Um, what I, you wrote a very uh, significant f- article in Foreign Affairs in which you said that basically both sides of the aisle, Republicans and Democrats, had gotten China wrong. Um, it's caused a lot of controversy, but what is the implication for U.S. policy toward China? In a sense, are you saying that what Donald Trump represents is the new normal, a much tougher policy toward China? Uh, Thank you, Fareed. First, I would say um, I think the argument of the piece was more that the conditions have changed. I actually think a collection, a bipartisan group of strategists did follow the right strategy for decades, but that the course that China has chosen is quite different from what we had hoped for a long period of time. And now that requires us to have a fairly significant rethinking of what the strategic approach of the United States and other countries should be towards China and a rising Asia. The argument, however, is very different from what the policy prescription that the president has proposed. What we need is a multifaceted approach that frankly involves participating in the kinds of summits and engagements that the president is missing this week, plus a multifaceted trade and diplomatic strategy that reminds uh, Asians that the United States intends to play an important role in Asia for decades to come. 
Ian, you, you were just in Asia. Is it your sense that they, they, that there are people beginning to feel we are entering a kind of new Cold War? Uh, there certainly is uh, a growing concern about that. Uh, I mean, the notion that China, as it's become wealthier, is absolutely not going to politically reform. Um, and they're going to start creating institutions that are not complementary with those of the United States, but rather are competitive. That's a sense that not only the Americans and the Europeans have, but also Singaporeans, Indonesians, you know, Malaysians, people on the ground, very concerned that the U.S. might not be as committed to them, but very concerned that their future in, under a Chinese umbrella is a problem. And there's no question that in the technology space, China is developing an alternative internet, an alternative AI system, and that feels increasingly like a Cold War with the United States. The question is on trade and whether President Trump is really planning to squeeze the Chinese and work on executing and implementing a new normal between the two countries, or whether he's going to meet with them in a couple weeks and say, hey, we got some money. I'm a president, he's a president, we're the two adults, here's our new deal, like he tried to do with the North mm -hmm. Koreans in Singapore. I could easily see Trump doing the latter, not the former. And, and Rana, you say, uh, you know, building on this idea of the future, we're actually entering a kind of tripolar world where yeah. there's going to be a European sphere, an American sphere, and essentially a Chinese-Asian sphere. I think that's right. I think you can see it already happening. It's been happening since the U.S.-China trade conflict began. Uh, as Ian says, China is really developing an entire digital ecosystem that uh, it will lead, but there'll be other countries, ASEAN nations, maybe some Middle Eastern nations that will come into that orbit. I spoke recently to a Chinese venture capitalist who told me he doesn't expect to be able to uh, be allowed to make deals in the U.S. anymore to invest in the U.S., but that's okay because he sees China as a kind of a U.S. market post World War II. It's big enough. It can grow on its own. The big question, and I think this goes to both points, is how will the U.S. and Europe engage, particularly around digital trade? Because, frankly, that's where the vast majority of the growth is. Are we going to come together? Are there going to be alliances made? Or is that going to become bifurcated as well? And I think that would mean very bad things for the U.S. Kurt, very briefly before we, uh, we take a break, um, Ian's question, there really does seem to be a division in the administration. There are the deal makers who say, let's scare China and get a better deal. And then there are people who feel uh, like Peter Navarro. No, we need to actually fundamentally have a break, decouple with China, uh, disentangle this economically interdependent relationship. Which do you think will prevail? I wish it was just as easy as two groups. I actually think it's more multifaceted. There is definitely a group that says if China buys more stuff from the United States, Boeing jets, uh, you know, ranching products, farm uh, stuff, uh, that we can uh, uh, resettle accounts a bit and uh, the president can tout those as examples of his leadership. There's another group that says, no, it'll be, it needs to be deeper, structural reforms. Uh, uh, China discarding 2025 and allowing more American technology and other firms uh, engagement, uh, honest and fair engagement in China. And then there's even a third group that says, no, what we really need to do is disentangle our economies. And the United States has to uh, go about its business uh, independent from China. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of where Ian is, though. I think uh, each of these groups vie for attention with the president. The president is the ultimate decision maker. What's fascinating about the U.S.-China relationship is that the relationship between our two countries has never been more complicated and more complex. But fundamentally, the institutions that have been tasked for decades to manage the relationship have never been less influential. 
ultimately every major decision in the U.S.-China uh, relationship is made by two men, President Xi Jinping in China and President Donald Trump in the United States, both of whom share some fascinating commonalities. They're impatient. They tend to be uh, skeptical sometimes of advice they get from uh, people beneath them, and they both believe fundamentally in their ability to make decisions under pressure. So, frankly, the most important bilateral meeting we have seen between the United States and China is about to take place in a couple of weeks, uh, and anyone knows what uh, uh, the outcome will be. <laughs> um, don't go away. When we come back, we are going to talk about the wild week across the pond. What is next for Britain, Brexit, and Theresa May when we come back? To Brexit or not to Brexit, that remains the question for Britain. Prime Minister Theresa May presented her draft plan for leaving the EU to her cabinet on Wednesday. It was sort of a soft Brexit. And on Thursday came a raft of resignations, including May's chief Brexit negotiator himself. And that sent the pound tumbling and made many question whether May can actually get this deal done. Let's bring back the panel, Kurt Campbell, Rana Faruha and Ian Bremmer. Ian, this seems like uh, a bit of a freak show, or, or uh, there may be other ways to describe it, but it's not working out. No, I mean, finally, we have something that everyone in the UK can agree upon, which is they all don't like this deal. Um, you know, and, and, and the fact is that the UK and Prime Minister May are, is in a really untenable position, which is she's trying to act domestically as if she can get a better deal than the status quo ante. That is actually not possible. And she's trying to negotiate as if she's an equal when you've got the fifth largest economy negotiating against um, the world's largest common market, an economic superpower, which is not prepared to give them the deal that they used to have, anything remotely close to that. So she can spin it domestically, but as the rubber hits the road, especially because there's not a sense of impending crisis. There's not a sense of falling off a cliff there where there was at the, the razor edge at the end when there was a Greek potential exit from the Eurozone and them facing a depression. So nothing's forcing the political players in the UK to have to compromise. Everyone's still playing politics the way that, you know, sort of George Osborne and, and Cameron, David Cameron did when they put the referendum forth in the first place. So where we are right now is she's going to face an all likelihood or no confidence vote, which she could win or lose. But this deal that she's put forward that for 14 hours, it looked like, oh, they've made progress. They've made no progress whatsoever. But, but what that means, uh, Ian, is basically what Britain is looking for is access to the European market on roughly the same terms they had. And the Europeans, are of course, saying, of course, you can't get that. That's the hope. You only get that if you're a full member. So either this gov the government will have to fall or it seems to me oh, there'll have to be a second referendum, but there's no prospect that they can get the deal that they are fantasizing about getting. I think that there is a prospect that, um, in fact, the most likely outcome here is that there is um, a vote of no confidence. Theresa May wins it, though barely. She then has a year where they can't have another such vote, and she puts forward a slightly tweaked deal. But it gets to be truly towards the end of negotiating, where suddenly the British market feels like it's going to implode if the UK doesn't support her, if the parliamentarians don't support her. And that's the way you ultimately get a deal done. But you have to create urgency. Sometimes they say, you need to take a problem, you want to fix it, you need to make it bigger. That's precisely what needs to happen in the UK if you want to get from here to exit procedure. Mm. But all of this brings up actually your, your column, uh, which is 
the world is actually moving toward deglobalization. Mm. That when you look at Brexit, you, corporates are beginning to disentangle. Yep. Um, you're seeing it in the U.S.-China relationship. Supply chains are coming home. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, a lot of the CEOs I speak to are kind of um, in a period of willful blindness, I guess, about this. I think that there really is cognitive dissonance because we've had 40 years of the global economy working in one particular way. All that's changing right now. I agree with Ian's analysis of what's going to happen with Brexit. I think it's very possible that you're going to see the U.K. go into a period of renegotiation. But if you think about it again from Europe's perspective, um, and in particularly German, Germany's perspective, they can't afford to let more countries fall out of the union, which is already, frankly, pretty precarious. We've seen Italy um, have, a, have a populist election. I think that the rules of the game are changing, but that the heads of these nations, the global elite and the business community, are waiting to see who blinks first. Who's going to move their supply chain? Everybody's talking about it. Um, is the European Union going to survive? We're all in doubt. I think ultimately, until you get real political cohesion, you're going to have economic volatility and certainly market volatility. Uh, Kurt, what does this look like from Asia? Um, they're looking at Europe. Well, they're looking at the United States. And what are they seeing? Look, at, at such a critical period when the lion's share of the history of the 21st century is now clearly going to be written in Asia. When Asians look uh, at the West, uh, look at the United States and Europe, and certainly what's going on now in Brexit and the follies in Washington, the disharmony and the disunity is uh, terribly uh, anxiety-provoking in every capital in Asia. And I think what it does it causes those countries to think, I've got to get my best deal mm. with China, and I've got to think more about my neighborhood, because these countries that have played such a large role in helping shape our environment through trade, through institutions, and through defense, they're not as reliable in the future as they have been in the past. Fascinating. Kurt Campbell, Ian Bremer, Sharma Furuha, pleasure to have you all on. We will have you back. All right, next up, where in the world is the largest tech incubator, the tech startup incubator? It is not in Silicon Valley. It is actually not in China. It is in an unlikely location, and we will take you there when we come back. sales event is happening now. Land Rover above and beyond. <laughs> the season of adventure sales event is happening now. Land Rover above and beyond. Make a smart choice. Replace one meal or snack a day with Glucerna, made with carb steady to help manage blood sugar, and end the day with a smile. Glucerna, everyday progress. In Chipotle's kitchen, you won't find any artificial ingredients, freezers, or microwaves. Because our kitchen's for, you know, cooking. Real ingredients, real flavor. Chipotle, for real. At Dewar's, all our whiskies are aged, blended, and aged again. It's the reason our whiskey is so extraordinarily smooth. Dewar's, double-aged for extra smoothness. We've been counted out, frozen out, and forgotten by a White House and Washington mired in special interest politics. But we can take our country back with a democratic agenda for the people that 
means lowering health care costs, increasing pay through rebuilding America, and cleaning up corruption. And it means having the strength to stand up for our values. It's time to make Washington work for the people again. Smart news. I was only watching news I agreed with. I was only getting news from social media. Now, I use smart news. It has news that matters. I I trust trust smart news. Download smart news for free today. I love playing sports, but I'm done with dating games. That's why I'm on eHarmony. At eHarmony, we connect you on what really matters. That's why every 14 minutes, someone finds love on eHarmony. Start free today. All the tools you need for every step of the way. Make it Squarespace. It's a furry phenomenon, and it's not what you might expect. In that moment, I am not the sick person in the wheelchair. Everybody needs to let their imagination go. This is Life with Lisa Lang, tonight at 10 on CNN. If a dirty CPAP is making you sick, you're not alone. I was getting sinus infections because I wasn't cleaning my CPAP properly. And that continued until I got my SoClean. SoClean is the world's first automated hands-free CPAP cleaner and sanitizer. It kills 99.9% of all CPAP germs and bacteria that can build up in your mask, hose, and reservoir. I don't have to push a button or anything. I just put the mask in the chamber, close the lid, and it runs automatically. SoClean is has been a lifesaver. SoClean works on all popular CPAP machines and masks. Try it risk-free for 30 days. Even shipping is free. Call 1-800-296-7610 to take advantage of this limited time offer. If you get a CPAP machine, don't even take it home until you have your SoClean machine right with it because they are a a marriage made in heaven. Try SoClean risk-free for 30 days. Even shipping is free. Call 1-800-296-7610 or go to TrySoClean.com. This is CNN, the most trusted name in news. Now for our What in the World segment. When you think of the Industrial Revolution, you might think of Europe and its railways, the cutting-edge technology of the time that unlocked explosive growth. So perhaps it's fitting that in a massive abandoned railway depot in southeast Paris, the next great hope for the French economy is taking root. It's called Station F, and its founders call it the largest startup incubator in the world. It spans more than 300,000 square feet and includes 1,000 startups. The incubator represents the entrepreneurial spirit that President Emmanuel Macron hopes to foster in France. But it was built with private money by the French telecom billionaire Xavier Niel, a Macron supporter. In the building, entrepreneurs hone pitches and marketing strategies. Facebook and Microsoft have both launched programs working with startups there. So is Station F the Silicon Valley of Paris? We asked its director, Roxanne Varza. I think Station F, a lot of people think it looks very much like Silicon Valley because we have a high density of startups, we have a lot of startup kind of ecosystem based on campus, but we don't necessarily want to be compared to Silicon Valley. Um, We like to think that what's happening here is very unique um, and also very unique to what's happening in the ecosystem in Europe. So what is happening in the startup ecosystem in Europe? London is still the tech hub, but post-Brexit, France may have an opportunity to catch up. 
After his election, Macron announced an $11 billion fund for innovation. He passed tax and labor reforms designed to help businesses and make it easier to hire workers. He launched a new tech visa and has courted tech investment. And there are signs of growth. In 2017, French venture capital firms raised $3.2 billion, up from just $596 million in 2014. And the founders at Station F want to build companies that can harness that new money. One of the companies hosted at Station F is led by two American entrepreneurs, Binda Jame and Jean Guo. Their startup, Connexio, offers computer training to poor communities, including migrants and refugees in France. It even teaches a cohort of students to code and works to place them in jobs. What we saw was that there were quite a few short-term solutions to the question of integration, but not necessarily uh, a plethora of long-term solutions. And so when we look at what really impacts integration in the long term, uh, particularly here in Europe, it's access to economic opportunities, it's access to jobs. And of course, there are many French entrepreneurs working at Station F as well. Take Arnaud Lenglet of Panda Guide. He's developing a headset that uses a camera and artificial intelligence to guide the blind. He shared with us a video simulation created for investors of what he hopes the final product will look like. The computer vision equipped headset would be able to recognize objects and transmit that information to the user through vibrating headphones. A robotics engineer, Lenglet came up with the idea after talking to a friend who was blind and suffered a fall on a train platform. I was wondering, oh, why are we, are we building autonomous cars? Why are we sending robots to Mars? And why are we not creating things for the blind and visually impaired? So the, the first idea was to transfer what we are doing in robotics and to apply it to something close to human body to help people. So can all this talent and energy revamp the French economy and banish the image of labor strikes and a 35-hour work week? Or France still has a long way to go to become a vibrant tech hub. Macron has made progress, but the country does need more reforms, including labor reforms. It also needs a broader culture of innovation. Initiatives like Station F and a lot more like them could be the start of a revolution. Next on GPS, how to take on Donald Trump and his Republican Party as they prepare for battle in 2020. Should the Democrats court the centrists or move to the left? The great debate when we come back. So did the Democrats achieve a blue wave in the 2018 midterm elections earlier this month? I leave it to the American political pundit class, but I think it's safe to say they did pretty well. The left-leaning party picked up more than 30 seats in the House of Representatives to give it a majority in that chamber. In the Senate, the Republicans still hold a majority, of course. So the question is, what should Democrats do to learn from and build on the successes in 2020? Should the party electrify and embrace its diverse base, or should it veer to the center and thus pick up wayward independents and never Trumpers too. Joining me now to discuss are Steve Phillips, a former politician himself, now an author, civil rights leader, and the founder of Democracy in Color. And Peter Beinart is a contributor to CNN and The Atlantic and a professor of journalism at CUNY. Uh, Peter, let me start with you and ask you to just try to give us the overall picture, because it does seem to me uh, 
It's a little bit mixed. You can read it whichever way you want. The Democrats do about as well in terms of seat gain, it seems, uh, as in 2006. Uh, most of the districts in the country moved left. The Times did one of these massive graphic surveys, and they point out the average district moved 10 percent left. But then when you look at it, you see that if you compare it to the the gains that they made in 2006, and the, when the Iraq war was very unpopular, second term of George W. Bush, it was not as impressive uh, in terms of this overall rightward shift, uh, leftward shift. And when you compare it to the Republican gains in, in the election of 2010, uh, after Obama and health care, uh, it's nowhere nearly as impressive. The Republican gain, the average seat in America, went 19 percent to the right compared to 10 percent to the left. So... Oh, what's the what's the sort of overall picture? The overall picture is the Democrats did a good job of mobilizing their base, but Donald Trump also did a reasonable job of mobilizing his base, which is that Trumpism is not a fluke. Donald Trump, who I think is a horrific president, does have a capacity uh, uh, to, to, to scare and mobilize rural, particularly white voters, and he brought those people out enough to save the Senate for Republicans. Steve, you see it, I think, more positively, right? Yes, fundamentally, that uh, it's important to begin recognizing that this president has never enjoyed majority support in this country. He lost the popular election by three million votes. He did not even get 50 percent in the three states that gave him the election. So, and he has never made any attempt to govern uh, in the interest of the majority of people. And so what you saw was the beginning of uh, a wave, really, of people who are bearing the brunt of the attacks of this president, standing up and fighting back and winning all across the country. And so it's not a complete victory yet, but it's a strong affirmation that the, there is majority that has a, a different vision from what this president is pursuing, and it was finally manifested in the electoral polls uh, last week. Peter, when you look at it, I think the, the big question is, was Nancy Pelosi's strategy the right one? I think it's fair to say that Nancy Pelosi set out a very clear strategy, which is, we are not going to make this about Trump. We're not going to make it about impeachment. We're not going to even go into the, issue, the, the issues that, that Trump wants us to, like immigration. We're going to talk about our issues that are more, in a sense, centrist, in the sense that there are practical concerns people have about the economy, about jobs, about health care and such. Did that yes, work? It absolutely worked. I mean, the, the problem is that the Democrats had to win to retake the House. A lot of districts that either voted for Donald Trump or were historically Republican districts. And in those districts, talking about uh, impeaching Donald Trump wouldn't have worked. The Democrats didn't talk a lot about the Russia probe at all. In fact, in those districts, people want more civility. Now, that may be a pipe dream in the era of Donald Trump, but they actually wanted people to be able to go and get things done even now, even with Donald Trump as president. And what Nancy Pelosi shrewdly understood was that the issue of health care and maintaining pre-existing conditions against the Republican effort to repeal Obamacare was an issue that Democrats could run on in the most blue districts and the most purple and even the most red districts. And that was a very, very shrewd strategy. But, Steve, you say if you look at the math, and you say this in your New York Times piece, do the math, the Democratic Party needs to move left, not center. 
Well, it's fundamentally about what is the vision of the country and what is the priorities and the values in which groupings are we. And so we're, we live in a country now where the President of the United States is trying to roll back the progress this country has made towards greater inclusion and equality and our higher set of values that is based upon diversity. He's, you know, misogyny, racism, xenophobia are hallmarks of this presidency. And so the question is, are you going to unequivocally stand up against that, summon the majority to your side, or some people in the Democratic Party feel like you have to kind of accommodate and try to do a lowest common denominator strategy? Peter, I suppose the argument that, that Steve is making is that there actually aren't a lot of persuadables left in America. We're two tribes, uh, and the, Trump is very good at bringing out his tribe, and the Democrats should be, be better at bringing out their tribe. Um, I don't entirely agree with that. I mean, there may not be that many persuadables, but in a, very, in a country that's very, very split, uh, those people are actually re still really important. I think a big part of the reason Donald Trump won was he reversed the Republican Party's position on free trade, and he didn't talk at all about privatizing Social Security and Medicare, and those, that helped him. Remember, he won 10% of people who had voted for Bernie Sanders. Democrats have to win those people back, and they can do it, I think, above all, by saying that Trump was a fraud. He promised you a kind of economic security, and in fact, what he's doing is pursuing the same old Republican economic policies that make your life more difficult. And that works for voters of every different race and, and, and gender. Fascinating conversation, which will continue and, and will continue on this program in the months ahead. Thank you both. Thank you. Up next, from Tito to Milosevic to Brnovich, how Serbia, an orthodox nation with a history of being led by strongmen, came to be led by a gay woman. Fascinating story when we come back. California voters approved Proposition 7 last week, a measure that would allow the state to stay in daylight saving time year-round. It brings me to my question. What other country or entity recently announced it intends to permanently scrap daylight saving time? The European Union, China, Russia, or South America? Stay tuned and we'll tell you the correct answer. My book of the week is Sophie Pedder's Revolution Francaise, Emmanuel Macron and the Quest to Reinvent a Nation. I read this while preparing for my interview last week. For all those intrigued by Macron, a fascinating figure on the world stage, this is the best book on him and his effort to make France great again. And now for the last look. Take a look at these paintings. They were commissioned by GumGum, an artificial intelligence company with a focus on computer vision alongside researchers from Rutgers University. One of these six artworks was not painted by a human being. GumGum was interested in how close AI could come to replicating the human creative process. So can you guess which painting was the work of a robot? If you picked the last, you were correct. This is Cloud Painter, a painting robot developed by American artist Pinder Van Armen. The machine's camera takes a photograph of a subject to paint, and using AI techniques like facial recognition and deep learning, the computer begins to put paint on the canvas. With the help of algorithms, Cloud Painter creates an original composition. And it is not simply painting pre-planned brush strokes like a 3D printer would. The robot watches its work and changes direction as the painting develops, drawing inspiration from other images and paintings, much like a human artist would. 
So, is art created by a robot still art? Van Armen says, for now, his robots are capable artistic assistants, but they may make art independently of humans in the not-too-distant future. The answer to my GPS challenge this week is A. The European Commission announced the EU should forego mandatory seasonal clock changes starting next year. An online survey ordered by the European Parliament received an unprecedented 4.6 million responses, with 84% of respondents in favor of ending the biannual clock change. The Commission presented a formal proposal to the Parliament, and individual countries will have the choice of staying in summer or winter time zones permanently. As for California, it isn't the only state to want to abandon daylight saving time, but state lawmakers and eventually Congress will need to approve the switch before these pesky time changes are officially history. Thanks to all of you for being part of my program this week. I will see you next week. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.